should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is Wednesday, February 3rd. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and it is Hump Day. Fong, our producer, is in studio. Happy Hump Day, Fong. Happy Hump Day to you, too. I have a hump day thought. If you have a moment, if you have this clear-cut moment and you know it's yours, whether it's career focus or it's a relationship, it's the person for you, it's the one, you should seize it. Because when you let it go, you give the universe this energy that you don't want it, the universe will take it. And it will be so incredibly hard to recover it, to get it back, and you're going to have to do so much fighting and you'll, you'll go through so much pain. Fong, <laughs> Fong's eyebrows are twitching. You don't understand what I'm talking about. Not really. What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I had a blast from the past. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I was reading our, uh, our guest today. I was mm-hmm. reading, reading her book. And so, you know, I'm thinking a lot about love. And I'm thinking about lost love. And mm. there were so many moments in the book that I felt... There, that uh, she had captured the moment and just seized it, and and I love, I loved it, and I just, I, I guess I, am I talking about regrets? Am I talking about former flame? I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to say too much in case my partner's <laughs> listening. Ah, <laughs> uh, I know, I get really personal on this show sometimes. So that's, that's good. Are Being you seizing real. your moments? You're young. Um, trying to. Yeah, I'm, I'm young, so um. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Have you ever been in love? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, well, let's let's define what that is first. I'll tell you. There's one person in my life who makes me who could I mean, who could talk to me like all night long, all night long, and uh, we could talk about everything, politics, uh, people, social issues, uh, Oprah. <laughs> I mean, we could talk and talk and talk, and that is. It's so intimate to me that that is a hundred times better than a quick orgasm, if you will. <laughs> and this person can do no wrong to me. And I, I just have this stupid, goofy look on my face every time I talk about this person. Aww. But that's my definition of love. Yours could be different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're still young. You have time. But I, but I really do enjoy your... Um, uh, your energy here on the, on the program. Let's get let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. 
Our guest today is author Paige Schilt, who has a uh, who has her her memoir out titled "Queer Rock Love: A Family Memoir About a Gender Nonconforming Family um, and uh, and 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 Falling in Love." Like I just mentioned, there were so many moments. Um, I'm not finished with the book, but so many moments in which I fell in love with uh, with her and the entire family. Paige, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Hold on one second. You I you were just a uh, a little too loud for my earbuds. So I was like, ah. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to blast you out. Yeah. No, um, thank you so much for being here on the program and also for Queer Rock Love uh, and something, you know, totally true and authentic uh, to our community. Um, let's start by, you know, I, 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 I want to go straight into it, but the, the moment you met your wife, Katie, uh, and falling in love. Um, and there was a there was a chapter in the book in which you you pretty much open up with that. Yeah, well, one of the genres that my book maybe touches on is the trans partner memoir because my my wife Katie is gender non-binary. She identifies as gender queer, um, and I felt like a lot of trans partner memoirs were really focused on. Um, discovery and disclosure and, you know, there's a secret and coming out and transition. And I wanted to tell, since that wasn't my experience, I wanted to tell a really different story. Um, And so it was really important for me to start with the moment I first saw Katie. She was in this um, kind of performance art rock band that was inspired by Dina, the Amazon princess. Their band was called Raunchy, Reckless, and the Amazons. Um, and Katie, wore, her, she had a character that was the vulgar Viking, and she wore this rubber prosthetic man chest with sculpted abs and a big full beard. Um, so the first moment I ever saw her on stage, it was like all out there in the open. Like, <laughs> like she looked really comfortable in that beard and, and the sculpted abs and pecs. Uh, so there wasn't really a moment of her coming out as trans, really, like, the fact of her being genderly different was part of what made me fall in love at first sight. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, which is, which is an incredible story, and you're so right, there's not a lot of those, um, in which I called it earlier, authentic stories or love stories of, from the non-conforming world or queer world, uh, trans world, um, and I think they're, they're starting to come out, so, you know, I, I, um, Let's go through. Let's go through the. I'm, I'm trying not to tell the story for everybody. That's my point. Is that I want people. I want you know for you to also tell the stories in your own words, um, because at the end of the day, I think this is a must read uh, book for for everyone. But there is something to be said about you and uh, Katie, and then also growing a family. Um, and 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 I was going to say it earlier. And being in this type of band, it sounds like underground San Francisco, but but it's not. Um, you're you know growing a family, uh, probably somewhere that most people wouldn't think uh, in a state like Texas. Yeah, and um, that's something that political context that I try to keep in mind, or you know, I try to keep it at the forefront of the narrative. I mean, Texas is such a contradiction to me because. I, I'm a transplant. I've lived here 20 years. I love it here in so many ways. Some of my deepest queer community and just many of my deepest communities that I've ever had are here. And, um, you know, my wife is from a kind of mid-sized Texas town. Everyone in town pretty much works in the chemical plants 
that are near the oil refineries. Um, it's like what you would think of as serious redneckville, and yet when we go there, we are embraced, and um, we also have queer friends who work in those chemical plants. You know, so there's queer life there outside the the big city, and that was. Um, one of the things that I wanted to kind of illuminate, I know I for a long time I taught um, LGBT film studies in Texas, and a lot of my students came from small towns. And, you know, I would show them films about San Francisco and, and the Castro and stuff like that, but because they were rural, they didn't necessarily identify with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wanted, in part, to kind of, you know, illuminate queer ways of life that actually are happening mm-hmm. in the South. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, family is so important in, in the South. And, uh, but at the same time, being queer is so different. You have these, you know, to me, it feels like such polar opposites. But I also enjoyed that, you know, you're very honest about uh, your family and uh, your wife's family and your relationships and kind of how everything kind of came together in this story of love. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, about, you know, not only meeting uh, Katie's parents, but also kind of your relationship with your own family and how that merged? Yeah, I mean, our families are, you know, in some ways they're both, they're similar families because I'm white and she's white and we're both middle class. Um, On the other hand, you know, her family is, um, a lot of them are very performative. They love to tell stories on themselves. And one of the things that really drew me to her and to her family was that they could have an argument and, there's a scene in the book, the first time I'm ever visiting her family's house, and she and her mother get in this argument, and I'm thinking, like, oh, the visit's ruined, got to pack the bag, got to get out of here. And then while I'm kind of doing that mental math in my head, they've already made up, and they're moving on. Um, so I, I, I was really drawn to that about her family. Um, and, you know, they gave me this opportunity to see this small-town Texas world that I, you know, they kind of gave me access to another way of life that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and my own family is just <laughs> very different, um, much more buttoned up. Um, but, you know, another, just kind of talking about um, non-traditional families and family stories that I feel like don't get told a lot, um, I'm actually second generation gay. My, my dad is gay. He came out when he was 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the themes in the book is, you know, uh, the fact that he and I were coming out around the same time <laughs> um, when he was, he was, you know, in his 50s and I was in my 20s um, and kind of what that's like to have your coming out arc intersect with your parents' coming out arc. That is so fascinating. <laughs> that's such a great story. Um, I, it, uh, well, here's the thing is that uh, there's this idea, there's this thought, especially from queers um, in urban cities, big, large cities like San Francisco. So myself included in this thought um, that it is uh, incredibly intense and hard and difficult for other queers. And, and when I say, you know, queers, I'm, I'm really more um, talking about trans and, and, and non-binary, non-conforming people 
um, to exist outside of or to exist within their own circle. But I mean, you and Katie have really uh, you're activists, you're outspoken, you have grown your family. Um, I mean, how difficult was it? I mean, you shared some dark moments in the book, but you also were very honest and open about uh, creating your own family, growing your own family and uh, the different ways that you guys went about that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we live in Austin, which is um, probably, um, you know, there are a lot of big cities in yeah. Texas, so I don't overgeneralize. Yeah. But Most a progressive city in Texas. Yeah, yeah, and it's a place where there's some amount of, um, uh, I don't know if tolerance is the right word, but there's, you know, it's, it's possible to live as a gender non-binary person, um, and you know, it's harder, I think, once we, you know, as soon as we leave town, then it's like, oh, like, where are we going to stop to go to the bathroom? Like, what what bathroom is Katie going to use? Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we just had this terrible defeat in Houston because the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance was um, on the ballot, and it was voted down by um, voters in November. And right. part of the reason why the, the people on the right were successful in um, getting that on the ballot was because they used this really intense anti-trans propaganda about, you know, young girls being assaulted in in bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's happening nationwide. Um, You know, other states are experiencing, you know, there are kind of, I think, a few right-wing organizations who are exporting these ads. Um, and they follow a really similar pattern, um, but they all play on these fears of um, around queer people and children. Um, and it is really intense to um, live in a state where you know people have been exposed to that propaganda and are and are believing it. And I think, um, you know, parenting is a really tough job and a lot of times parents are um, kind of worried like oh no you know am I going to mess up my kid mm-hmm. <laughs> like are these mistakes going to come back and be reviewed on a therapist's couch someday in the future And um, but I think for queer people because we're constantly being told you know we're going to destroy the family we're harmful to minors right. all, these, all these lies about us um that shame, you know, really comes up a lot in in parenting, um, you know, because I think the flip side of that is feeling like, oh, I need to be perfect. I need to be the perfect parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was talk about making a family and really talk about the kind of nitty-gritty stuff. Yes. Um, yeah, even breastfeeding is involved in that and yeah. and, and talking about yeah, two moms, which I want to get to, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Paige Schultz, who's the author of Queer Rock Love. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is Paige Schilt, who is the author of Queer Rock Love, which is a family memoir and uh, pretty much talks about her incredible, fa- fabulous family, <laughs> a gender nonconforming family uh, being raised in, uh, in in Texas. I mean, Austin, like I said, is a progressive city, but at the same time, we just finished talking about um, Texas in general. Um, Paige, I wanted to focus on this this thought. There is a chapter in, in the book titled, you know, uh, Does Wyland Need Two uh, Mommies? And um, oftentimes, even within our own community, uh, people mistaken that you know if you have a trans partner, uh, they totally forget the the uh, the the fact that um, trans can also identify uh, with sexual orientation. Um, did you ever you know encounter that as far as your experience and when you're growing your family, being in a relationship with Katie, being a, an activist? Um, I think you know it's. A lot of the time when the book is being written, you know, there are these big, this big struggle for marriage equality going on. Mm-hmm. And I was actually working as an activist. And it's funny, you know, if you if you work at all in LGBT activism, you know, different organizations are always having these photo shoots because they need, <laughs> you know, at that time, especially, like, they need pictures of diverse families. Right, yes. Um, and <laughs> yes, I, I've been called to for for one of those, but I was in a relationship with someone I didn't want to be in a relationship <laughs> since I knew it was historical. I was like, you know, I don't, I'm not a good candidate, but I'm glad you you were part of it. Well, I mean, the funny thing is we would always get asked and then I think, um, you know, we'd go to the photo shoot pose with our cute family. And then I think there would be this moment of like, oh, they don't exactly look like a lesbian couple. Um you know, are, is this, you know, a straight ally mm, family? Is, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, I felt like at a certain point I just had to say, no, we're not going to do any more um, of those photo shoots because our family never ends up getting represented. And it's because we were just like a little bit like um, not quite fitting this idea of the same sex 
parents because, um, you know, our genders are really different, even though we both use feminine pronouns and have feminine names. Um, so I always, even though I, I worked in the movement, I always had this feeling of my family being a little bit um, outside the rhetoric, um, which, you know, made me want to write my story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, there's this other, you know, I, I was going back to the the uh, the discussion about you know two moms, um, mm-hmm. and what I enjoy about the book is that even for myself as a cis uh, nonconforming lesbian, there's always this discussion that if you are growing a family, that you know, the, it's so hard to not to try not to exist in what um, this heteronormative society provides for us, right? Uh, gender mm-hmm. roles or, you know, wanting to find the out the sex of your baby. And then, and then, and then inadvertently you, you are kind of a part of, of, of that heteronormative society as well as parents. But I feel like in your memoir, you're very open about um, just, just being this, this family that unfortunately society deems as different. Yeah, I, well, I have this theory of parenting, um, you know, because obviously I'm a feminist and my partner is gender nonconforming and we, we wanted to try and raise our kid in the most, uh, or the least, you know, genderly oppressive way that we could. You know, we didn't want to just reinforce all these norms that had been enforced on us as kids. Um, and, um, you know, that's a very fine line to try to tread and we did do some of the things like you know we did find out the sex of our baby before he was born and we used male pronouns with him but we also tried to just like always gesture towards the fact that there were lots and lots of gender possibilities and not just two Mm um and I think of that as um you know the religious right always has this rhetoric about parenting and one of the main things that they say about why queer people shouldn't be parents. It's like, you know, kids need a mother and a father, like this idea that you need two gender role models. Um, And I really like to try and turn that on its head and say, you know, there's so many genders out there, and really what you need is a really genderful family, um, which is, (laughs) you know, where you're just, like, trying to introduce your kid to, like, this wide spectrum of gender possibilities and then give them this space to kind of figure out what resonates with them. Um, so it was really important for me to talk about our family, not just in terms of me and Katie and Willem, but also our bigger queer community mm-hmm. um, and our, our friends and the people who, who helped us out in hard times because that opens it up to a lot more of a, a genderful, genderful world <laughs> yeah. um, uh, for him. I love it. I love it. And, uh, you know, tell us some stories or specific ones, some positive ones um, that we could share. Uh, maybe, you know, um, an experience, inclu- in- including your son or some, some yeah, just your, your own family stories, if you want to share them with uh, our listeners. Sure. Um, well, since we were talking about bathrooms, this is a story, actually, that's not in the book, but it's on my old blog. I used to write for Valerico Project. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, we went on a family vacation to Hawaii. And um, usually when we're traveling with Katie, people kind of read her about 50-50. Like 50% of the time people are reading her as masculine. And about 50% of the time people are reading her as feminine. 
But for some reason in Hawaii, she was just consistently gendered male. Um, and so um, it put this kind of heightened pressure. Um, and we were staying in a resort, which, you know, turned out to be like full of newlyweds. So it was like the most heteronormative um, <laughs> kind of context that you could imagine. Um, and so it put all this pressure on um, where she was going to go to the bathroom. And, and our son was still pretty little. So, you know, he, he had maybe like just graduated from not coming with us into the restroom. Um, but uh, he was really into the story about uh, Greek gods at the time. And so he decided that he was going to have a name for her. Like, if she was going to use the men's restroom with her, she, he couldn't be like, Mommy! Yeah. <laughs> her in there. Um, so he decided that her name was going to be Sue. Oh. Um, <laughs> which is so sweet. And uh, he, he, was, uh, he was really good at, at kind of, like, being a good ally to her in the bathroom. Like, they, there was a moment where they walked into the bathroom and there was one stall open and then the urinals and he's just like, you take the stall, Zeus. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just like moments like that where uh, I think in part because we've always talked to our son about gender, like he was able to navigate that um, and, you know, not have it be this traumatic moment, but really actually this kind of creative and funny moment of deciding that she would be Zeus. Oh, it just makes me want to cry. I mean, you know, you've got trans adults who, uh, are, yeah, it's a very real thing to be in fear of using public accommodations and spaces um, and, uh, and, and and oftentimes have to go through it alone. Um, sharing the story is just so, so, so special. Um, well, you know, there are, are a lot of trans families out there and, and trans uh, adults in relationships who want to grow their families, but maybe um, have some thoughts and some fears. Um, what kind of advice would you give for, you know, future trans or uh, non-conforming um, families? I think, you know, I was talking before about how I feel like LGBT people can have a lot more shame around not being perfect parents or feeling like, oh, no, I'm going to mess up my kid. And I think that is, you know, we have to really be self-aware about that and realize that's what, um, that's what the right has been projecting onto us. And it's been a really, for them, a really useful weapon um, against LGBT rights to say that we're harmful to minors. But I think just keeping tabs on that shame, but also just realizing, like, you can't parent in reaction to that. Like, you can't, your, your response can't be, I have to be perfect, because if I make a mistake, you know, mm -hmm. people are going to, you know, blame it on the fact that I'm queer or blame it on the fact that I'm trans. You have to um, just realize, like, all families are full of messes and mistakes, and there's always room for repair. But for me, I mean, one of the, really the overarching themes of the book is just learning to be open about my messes and my failures and realizing that the more I shared that stuff and just said, like, I'm having a really hard time, the more I felt connected to other people. Um, and, you know, I, I used to always imagine that if I, if I admitted that I had made mistakes that I would feel terrible, but in fact, it just made me feel more like a human being who mm -hmm. had something in common with other humans. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that's kind of my advice to anyone who's a parent, not just 
um, LGBT parents. Well, I was my second question was going to be, what about you know any any thoughts or comments to those who just can't get over the fact that there has to be you know male female parents, uh, <laughs> and 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 I don't mean that just in uh, gender uh, or sex, um, but also as in you know how you how you raise children, right? Like they're, they're if you're they're a boy, you raise them um, absolutely boy according to what society defines as boy or or male. Uh, what, what what would you say to those parents who are who just can't get outside of their very tiny box? I think that um, you know there are a lot of parents like that, and mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's helpful to just think about what is confining for both boys and girls growing up with those really rigid gender norms. You know what is lost. Um, I I sometimes. I volunteer at Girls Rock Camp in Austin, and sometimes I teach a workshop about gender for, for these are like 11-year-old girls. And a lot of times we just, like, I take pictures of the toy aisles, and then we talk about, like, you know, what do people assume about girls if you look at these toys? What are they assuming? And what are people assuming about boys if you look at these toys that are marketed to boys? And then pretty soon, you know, the kids are just bubbling up with wanting to share how they feel like they don't fit with those preconceived notions of what a girl should like or what a boy should like. And I I feel like a lot of times when people are really rigidly enforcing gender norms, it's because there was a lot of um, gender policing in their own family and there was a lot of kind of um, violence directed towards them if they weren't. Um, they didn't conform to gender norms, so I feel like it's a place of of trauma for a lot of people. Um, and I, I think I hope if my book is useful to people, that that's one of the ways that it's useful to people to see that it's, you know not enacting gender norms isn't a source of shame, um, and it won't ruin your family. Paige, thank you so much for joining us here this morning and for sharing your wonderful book and stories of your family. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Paige Schilt, everyone, pick up a copy of her book. It's really incredible and amazing, and I always think it's great to, to share diverse stories, and that is queer rock love. Don't go away. We will continue the Michelle Miao Show right after this break. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be 
in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this hump day. It's February 3rd. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. And uh, our next guest is Gabrielle uh, Glancy. I almost said Schultz again. Paige, I was thinking of Paige Schultz. And now we're moving on to another author, another incredible book. Um, and the, uh, the wonderful, the amazing Gabrielle Glancy. Gabrielle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, we've got I've got your book and right in front of me. I'm already disturbed. Please come in. Parasites, social media, and other planetary disturbances. A memoir of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love the title. How did you come up with the the title? Uh, well, I I mean the I'm already disturbed. Please come in. I saw it somewhere, and I thought it was perfect for this particular story. Um, so, um, you know, that, that just came to me. And then I realized I needed something that made that a little bit more explicit. Um, so that's where parasite social media and other planetary disturbances came in. So what do you mean by it's a, it's a memoir uh, uh, of sorts? <laughs> in my mind, I got sort of, kind of, maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a kind of, I like to refer to it as a trans-genre book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, it kind of crosses genres, so I didn't feel like I could just say a memoir, because I don't think it's just a memoir. It's kind of a book about um, what's going on in the world now um, in terms of climate change and ridiculous pandemics, Ebola and now Zika and things like that, um, um, you know, the environment and what we're doing to the environment and... Um, just the crazy world we live in. I think it's a social commentary in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it reflects on social media and the, the sort of viral aspects of that, viral, addictive, and um, sort of mixed mixed bag aspects of social media. Um, and as well, it's a story about this particular few years in my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I felt like it, it wasn't right to just call it a memoir because it seems like... It's more than that. It's a combination of things. I love it. I love it. I'm going to start with, um, you know, the beginning of the book. Uh, you had just mentioned social media. And so it, it starts with some Facebook screenshots and kind of, you know, your your words of, of what's happening here on, on Facebook. Um, what is your relationship with Facebook? And, and how do you feel about this, you know, social media giant? Well, I mean, I think... Um, 
you know, when I wrote this, which was, I think I started it about three or four years ago, um, about a period that had started five or six years ago, Facebook was newer. Um, and I think now it's just like, you know, completely ubiquitous and, um, you know, just everybody uses it and it just is, you know. Um, at that particular time, I was, um, there were moments in my life at that time where there was nothing else I could do, basically. I worked, I, I, was, I was a single mom, so I had to work, um, and I, I worked minimally, um, and often, you know, there were times I had to excuse myself and, and go to the restroom and lie down on the floor to get the blood back to my head. Uh, and when I was home, I took care of my son, and in all my downtime, I was kind of in a zombie state, and I just sort of sat with my hand on the mouse and just kind of, you know, trolled the Internet and, <laughs> and um, looked at Facebook. What, what were some of your uh, observations and, uh, in, and the non-human interaction and, and this entire interaction happening to yourself as, as a writer, as a poet? Um, I just find that the words you used to describe what your experiences were both beautiful, uh, chaotic at times, and, and sometimes isolating. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of Facebook, I mean, I think that it's like, I, at one point, I refer to it as the primordial soup that is Facebook, that it's kind of this uh, collective unconscious that we have access to. Um, you know, everybody's sort of spewing what they want you to see, um, and sometimes they're aware of what it is that they, they're trying to portray and how they want to look to you, and sometimes they just post things and you kind of see more than they probably want you to see. Um, and then... Just it's it's a very filtered way to get you know the news of the world also kind of human interest news of the world and then what I was interested in is that before I knew I would write the book I started I guess it's just the writer in me I started collecting taking screenshots of the Facebook posts collecting them and putting them in a folder mm. and I was in in such a half conscious I mean it was a weird state because it was like half-conscious, semi-conscious, zombie-like on one hand. And on the other hand, I was so aware of every, like, you know, um, gas bubble in my body that it was hyper-conscious. So it was this mixture of kind of half-conscious and hyper-conscious. And um, I realized later that it was like a found poem, what I had saved from Facebook. Like, I just, the the things that I had ended up saving were really interesting to me later. Like, oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. And I saw that there was a kind of, like, hidden narrative mm-hmm. to my Facebook collection. <laughs> it was a poem in itself. Right, that, right. That was then speaking to me. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So in a way, like, in a certain way, I think that the Facebook, um, the Facebook screenshots that I had collected kind of told a story in and of themselves, and then I decided, pardon me, to write that story, and that's what the, that's what became the book. Um, I love it. I love it, and there was not a moment in which um, 
I didn't enjoy it. Uh, there are dark moments and in uh, in in moments. And I, what I love about it is that yeah, you would take these uh, uh, updates, social media updates, and then craft it in your own words of how you know do you, you identified with it. Such as um, in chapter ten, uh, there's a screenshot of I'm a bad mother. Period. Um, and then, you know, you follow up with, well, why would you say such a thing? I'm embarrassed just reading it. Although lately I kind of feel that way myself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it, it provides this kind of mirror, I think, for better or for worse. Um, and then, and then, you know, switching from that and, and that mirror, right. And looking at oneself and kind of how you identify in your own world or perhaps how you're feeling, um, with other relationships in your, your life, you, you switch to something that also is lighthearted, which I think the entire universe can, um, connect with, although it's a private matter, such as in chapter 13, uh, there's a you take a snapshot of a photo posted somewhere, some notice of, of masturbation notice. Uh, masturbation in the showers is a violation of the University of Massachusetts housing code. <laughs> I love I love that. And then you follow up with I do masturbate in my own room. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Well, do you, do you... an opportunity too to just like um, let it all hang out? You know, I just. I felt like, um, I don't know, you know, I just wanted to say it all. I wanted to tell it as, you know, tell it like I saw it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a, you know, a couple steps back and, and kind of get to know uh, Gabrielle you know, deeply because um, you share so much in this memoir or sort of memoir. <laughs> um, uh, if, if we could go back into, you know, your, your childhood and, and, you know, I always find that people's childhood, uh, how they grew up, it's very interesting and it contributes to their adult life, of course. Oh, wow. I didn't expect you to ask me that. Um, I have to think about it. Um, I, maybe ask me a more specific question about my childhood. Sure. I mean, you know, I, your relationship with you, with your parents, where you grew up, um, any, uh, you know, interesting stories uh, that you'd like to tell that stick out to you that uh, you can remember that, you know, because this happened and I still remember it, that is why I react this way today at X age. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I couldn't trace back the roots of this particular... Um, you know, book to to events in my childhood, although in a way, just the title, I'm already disturbed, please mm-hmm. come in. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, the disturbance predated um, the parasites that I had, um, although I think part of it is, is the sense of the disturbance being planetary as well. It's sort of like, yeah, well, my microbiome is disturbed because um, there's so much processed food and, and crap in the environment. Um, you know, and I suppose my psyche is disturbed for the same reasons, in a way. Um, as far as my own childhood, it's interesting because I did um, uh, an interview called 10-Minute Interviews in which she asked me a, a lot of detail about my childhood. Um, so, I mean, you can read that online. But um, I grew up in Coney Island, actually, New York. Um, sort of, I like to joke, um, you know, like with Woody Allen under the under the roller coaster, um, and it was more like on the roller coaster in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Uh, my mom was a single mom. My father um, 
was a photographer. He ended up moving to Paris, um, and he spent the last about 25 years of his life in Paris. Um, and there were many, many years in which I didn't see him. Um, my mother herself is a very, she's an artist herself. She ended up as an English teacher. She taught English, high school English. She was the only one in her family at that point to go to college. Um, and um, my maternal grandmother, I was very, very close to my ter- maternal grandmother. It was a wonderful, really interesting, wonderful person. And my maternal grandfather was just insane. Um, he, I think he really was. He was very, very creative and interesting. He was sort of a builder, architect, um, a very wild imagination, um, alternate, alternately violent and weird. And um, so he was, he was sort of in and out of the picture. And I think um, a destabilizing force in my family in general, uh, on one hand, and on the other, um, I think he himself was probably a frustrated artist. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of kind of creative energy that ran through the family. My grandmother was not an artist at all. She was a sort of politico. She was a progressive. Um, she she marched with John Reed and Emma Goldman in those years. Um, she was a radical. And actually, um, my mother, my grandmother, and my father all spent time in jail for civil disobedience. My mm-hmm. father was uh, Mr. X. He refused to have his class. He was a French teacher. Refused to have his class salute the flag during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Was arrested for that. Um, my grandmother in Coney Island refused to pay the dues for the beach in Seagate, which is where we live. She said, the ocean is for the people. It's free. And so she was she was arrested. And then my mother... Um, was um, vice president of the National Teachers Association. They went on strike. She was arrested, too. So I hope I never actually have to go to jail, but I come from a pretty radical, um, uh, pretty radical world. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Gabrielle, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I'd love to continue our discussion about your your book here, I'm Already Disturbed, Please Come In, Parasites, Social Media, and Other Planetary Disturbances, a memoir of sorts. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. 
the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this hump day. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. Our guest today is Gabrielle Glancy, uh, who's the author of I'm Already Disturbed. Please come in. Parasites, Social Media, and Other Planetary Disturbances, a memoir of sorts. Gabrielle, I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, I think that uh, a lot of users on Facebook use it uh, as a form of uh, diary entries um, almost in, in kind of the way that they write on Facebook. Um I love that the book goes in and out of, of what it feels like an actual diary entry and then and then using what other people post um, as if uh, they're writing in their own diaries. Had you ever thought about that when you were putting this together? Hmm. Not quite in that way, but I think, I think it's accurate, and I think the fabric of our lives these days um, is made up of, you know, so much um, interaction you know, think about a day, you know, you wake up, you check your, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would guess, you know, you check to see if there's any texts have come through. Maybe even during the night, you check to see if any texts have come through. You can see your messages right on your phone. You know, then you check Facebook. Then you, you know, you, we're bombarded all the time by, you know, so much, um, so much media, social media, and interact social interaction in a way. I think we're more isolated than ever in another way. Um, that I really think that the fabric of our lives is just made up of um, a lot of different, you know, threads and pieces. Mm. Speaking of diary entries, um, you know, when when uh, when I felt like I was reading your diary, you were talking very openly about about your health. Um, Talk to us about that, you know, uh, in, in terms of deciding to include um, these chapters that talk very in-depth about about your health. Well, I mean, I think um, really the, that was the sort of central, um, in a way, mystery of the book, which was, you know, in, in this case, it's not a whodunit, but a what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the echo of that, you know, there's something wrong with me, what's wrong with me, I can't identify it, certainly has kind of psychosocial um, implications. In this particular book, I really didn't know what was wrong with me. I was so, so, so sick. I thought I was going to die. Um, and I couldn't, as, even though they, you know, the doctors did a million different tests, it was like really a circus itself, you know, going from doctor to doctor. Um, And I kind of turned, someone said to me later, and I think this is true, I kind of turned the clinical gaze 
instead of having all of the doctors kind of cock their heads at me, you know, and wonder um, what's wrong with me and who is this person, this book turns the spotlight around. So I'm actually looking at the doctors. Um, and I think there was a, there's, I don't know if I would quite say sweet revenge, but certainly it was very vindicating to be able to um, tell the story of just such a crazy journey. And, you know, there was one time, you know, I went to this gastroenterologist who made me wait for an hour and 37 minutes. Finally, I walked down the hallway to, to see where she was, and lo and behold, she said, like, wait a minute, I, you know, can't you see I'm busy? Mm-hmm. And she moved her rolling chair aside, and I realized she was on Facebook herself. Oh, my gosh. Coming to see me, <laughs> you know, so it was like, oh, my God, somebody has to talk about this. The other thing is that, you know, when you're very sick, which I was, you know, you're really vulnerable, and I'm articulate and, you know, relatively attractive and, you know, full of energy when I'm in good health and can speak for myself, but, you know, what goes on behind closed doors, nobody's talking about, and I just wanted to be able to, you know, tell the story also of what was going going on behind closed doors. Like, I was so happy when I wrote the chapter about that doctor who was on Facebook instead of seeing me. Uh, uh, what does the world and come I to? I was lying. I mean, it's just, you know, it's funny because I'm, I have a book in progress called You Can't Make This Stuff Up, but that's like the kind of thing where you can't make that up. That's like, no, mm-hmm. you can't be serious. And actually, it was true. That's so, that is so, I mean, you know, uh, lack of a better word, I mean, crazy. <laughs> I would feel, crazy. I would feel crazy too. Um, I didn't get to finish the memoir, so I don't actually really know, you know, what was wrong with you. I don't know if you want to spill the beans to our listeners or for myself, um, but you're okay now that we know. In, in- uh, you know, I'm relatively okay. I'll never be the same. Um you know, I'm healthy, but I have to do a lot to keep my health um, in balance um, because basically my, um, like many, 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 many people, my uh, internal um, you know, microbiome, the, the um, you know, the, the good and the balance of good and bad bacteria inside my gut um, is a very, very fine balance. So I, I have to take large quantities of of the good bacteria in order mm. for them to fight the bad bacteria and the bad bacteria will never completely go away. I don't think. Um, so I think it's going to be a lifelong balancing act, you know, and I think it's just simply the internal reflects the external, which is really the point of the book mm-hmm. that, you know, my internal environment just reflects the chaos and imbalance, um, you know, in the external environment. There, there is a good, good question, but yeah, no, yeah, absolutely, it does. Thank you. Um, there is a good part of the book in in which you you talk about falling in love. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and what would you like to know? About? I know. I would like to know. You know the. Uh, I mean that, that. I love that that was included in the in this book. Um, and that was a part of your experience while well, you're going through all this craziness and, and trying to figure out what's what's wrong with you. Uh, in the midst of it all, you uh, end up falling in love um, in a very you know poetic way. I, that probably contributed to, uh, in so many ways, not just, you know, as you're going through all this craziness, I, I would think that 
falling in love was a, was a beautiful thing for you as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a really weird time to fall in love. So um, that's, uh, you know, I basically got sick a week after I met Satya, um, and I was in the emergency room for the first two or three months constantly. Like every three to five days, I ended up in the emergency room. Um, And, I mean, I think she thought I was just, you know, crazy. I often asked her later, once I got healthy, why did you stay with me? I mean, did you just, like, think, um, what am I getting myself into here? This this woman is sick all the time. And mm-hmm. she said, yeah, uh, she said, yes, and my friends told me I was crazy. She said, but I could see underneath that you were full of energy and you were going to do what you needed to to heal. And she actually had a lot of faith in me while it was happening. She often said, you're going to be okay. I see I see your power underneath. I see your strength. Keep going, keep going, you know. But she brought, you know, we, we ended up raising our sons together. She she had a son when we met who was four years old and my son was three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we raised the boys together and I was in and out of, I was in and out of the hospital and they were in and out with us. You mm-hmm. know, they spent a lot of time in the emergency room and in the hospital with, with us. Um, you know, it wasn't constant, uh, but... It was awesome. Well, so. G- Gabrielle, I, I really do. Um, I thoroughly am enjoying your memoir, and I got to finish it this weekend. Uh, I just I just got it in my hands a couple days ago, so I apologize to get to finish it. My last question for you, and uh, I'm so honored to have you on the program. By the way, uh, you mentioned that you have uh, you know children, um, and lots of young people are using Facebook in in a lot of ways. Um, for someone as an, an intellect and someone who's gone through experiences in life, um, what kind of lasting words or thoughts would you have for the young who uh, use Facebook in, in ways that we probably didn't imagine we would before Facebook? I don't know if the young, the, the youngest young generation, which would be like five to thirteen these days, because they're they're definitely you know on the computer all the time. They're always, you know, on their iPads or whatever. I don't think they're using Facebook per se. I think if we did a demographic, it's probably now, I don't know, 20 to 50 or something like that. Um, but there are, you know, my sons are on the, on the um, iPad constantly, constantly, mm. constantly. And I think it's, I, you know, it's like an uphill battle because that's just the way it is. I mean, with, with my son now, I try to get him to, you know, balance. Again, it's a balance so that he's not overtaken. Because if he does, he, he's like a zombie if he spends too long on his iPad. You know, he's doing Minecraft. He's looking at Star Wars and things like that. He's not interested in Facebook. He looks over my shoulder sometimes if there's, he's obsessed with koalas. So if there's, he's nine years old, if there's a koala you know, eating eucalyptus, I'll show him a picture. But otherwise, he's into his stuff, but he's into it big time. I mean, yeah. it's intense yeah. how much, you know, I, um, I, kids are using yeah. it. I guess I was referring to, you know, the overshare on on, on platforms um, that, uh, you know, on social media. Um, I don't know. It seems like humans are so open to sharing anything and everything on the Internet these days. Uh, and I, I truly, uh, you know, what I loved about the memoir is that I, I truly believe it, 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 it does contribute to your, your psyche, your, your thought process, your mental health. Right. Well, I think it's, it counterbalances actually a lot of alienation, too, 
It's a mm. weird combination because it used to be, you know, you had dinner and you walked arm in arm with your significant other, this is like 100 years ago, in the piazza and <laughs> ran into your friends, right? Or even when I was, you know, in my 20s in New York City in the East Village, I went to the cafe. That's what you did. You know, there was yeah. like, you know, and I and there I met Eileen Miles, you know, and everybody knows Eileen Miles now, but it was a community. Right. So, and everybody kind of just would go and chat and say, what are you doing? Did you see so-and-so? Did you know so-and-so and so-and-so broke up? Or, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so got together and, oh, you know, there's a job opening at blah, blah, blah. Like, that's how people used to function. And now they don't function like that anymore. Um, you know, you don't just go out and, and sit at the cafe and, and know that your friends are going to walk, you know, walk by and you're going to say hello. And there's mm -hmm. no, like, central meeting place. Mm -hmm. So in a certain way, um, you know, sites like that are central meeting places. Facebook's like a central meeting place. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the world that we live in, I think it's, it's got a necessary function. Um, you know, so it's a weird balance. I, I, wish, I couldn't tell you exactly what the, the like, longer-range effects will be, but I think there's no way to know exactly because we're like born into this generation and that's it. Here it right. is. It's here to stay. You know? Right. And, but I do think, and I think that's what the book says that, um, there is an imbalance and it's, you know, the, the external environment in terms of climate change and social media and everything, uh, that we deal with has an effect on our psyches and our bodies. And I think it causes imbalances. Absolutely. It's really hard to, you know, feel feel nature in the way that we used to or feel relationship in the way that we used to. And at the same time, you know, it, it enables us to be in touch during the day. I mean, I used to go to work and come home and check my voicemail from my landline yeah. and send letters, snail mail, to people who lived in California when I was living in New York, you know. And now I'm just, you know, I'm in touch with with everybody everywhere, all day long. <laughs> I love it. Sitting well, on the toilet. Right. Beautifully you know? said, uh, Gabrielle. Um, we've run out of time. I'm so sad. But thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a little piece of yourself. Great pleasure. Gabrielle Glancy, everyone, pick up a copy of her book, I'm Already Disturbed. Please come in. Parasites, Social Media, and Other Planetary Disturbances, a memoir of sorts. That's it for today's show. Please join us tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com.